0: Christ the life of all the living,
1: Christ the life of all the living, Christ the life
0: name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen most merciful lord when our soul is cast down and we are disquieted by the troubles of life and the assaults of evil from an ungodly world teach us to believe that you alone are our strength and joy under the cross of affliction Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me to your cross and resurrection for comfort. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We'll take a look at the congregation at prayer briefly before going back to Genesis. I do have some public service announcements, and um, I do enjoy the fact that we don't do this very often. So then occasionally doing it is a good thing, uh, handing out these clipboards. And since everybody's in a good mood after the auction, and uh, we'll encourage some participation for the Easter breakfast, which Cherie has agreed to spearhead again this year. And Kevin Larson. And Kevin Larson. He's right back there. (laughs) So they would like... uh, a little bit of guidance. First of all, donations are needed for things like orange juice, 2% milk, donut holes, cut fresh fruit, whole fresh bananas and oranges, plastic storage containers, trash bags. I see the orange juice on here but I don't see the champagne listed. Um, <laughs> Okay, there you go. So there's that one. Sign up, uh, please. (laughs) And then volunteers needed for, um, servers need to be prepared for action immediately following the early service. Cleanup will begin as soon as the breakfast ends and be completed during the late service. You know, for setup, cooking, serving, cleanup, uh, et cetera. So there we have it. And then just to get a feeling for, how many people are likely to attend, you have that here, OK? okay. Now, I just also, one final thing, I, I'm, you know, I'm always concerned about people's health, you know, and, and uh, getting a little concerned about Marcy's weight. She's making these big cookies, <laughs> and you're likely to become way overweight eating these cookies, Marcy. Marcy, how, how, how many years young will you be in July? 98. 98. Marcy is the second oldest in the congregation. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Kanapi will be 97 on the 30th. And my stepmother is 101. She's at Shorehaven. So she's the oldest. And then you're second. Just watch the fat. <laughs> All right, just kidding. Uh, eat. Eat, Marcy. Uh, 2 Corinthians twelve nine is our verse for the week. St. Paul, this is part of the autobiographical section in 2 Corinthians, and it's the same section where he comments about the thorn in the flesh and how he sought the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh, and the flesh... Or St. Paul is so often associated, remember, with the problem, the ever-present problem of sin and the corruption of our flesh on this side of the grave. So our sin is forgiven and we're declared righteous in baptism, yet the problem of sin remains. And um, this is, in large part, what he's talking about with the thorn in the flesh, as I've said from time to time, it would be a lot easier to be a pastor if I weren't a sinner or to be a Christian if I weren't a sinner. So he he besought the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So let's speak 2 Corinthians 12, 9 together. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay. Through our infirmities, through our struggles we learn dependence upon the grace of Christ which is not only the source of our salvation But it is sufficient to sustain us in this earthly struggle against sin from within and without, persecution, suffering, hardship, and so forth. So, lovely passage. I want to say something else about this. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. If you go in the Gospels, you will not find that quotation, You only find it here in 2 Corinthians 12.9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And uh, how can that be? Do you remember the Apostle John said, many other things Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing have life in his name. So just because you can't find this in the Gospels doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say it. Secondly, Saul of Tarsus was called to be the Apostle Paul. And as an apostle, he was called to be an eyewitness. One of the qualifications of an apostle is that they were chosen directly by Jesus face-to-face to be his sent one. An, an apostle is one sent out on his behalf with, with his word, and to bear witness to his death and resurrection. So they had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road saw the Lord Jesus. And then in Galatians, he talks about spending a great deal of time with the Lord, uh, through which he learned many things, and I submit to you this was spoken to him then. Another place where you find something that Jesus... Um, you don't find it in the Gospels. Remember the words of our Lord, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's found in 1 Corinthians. Where? I don't. You can't find it in the Gospels. But what's interesting about that passage, remember the words of our Lord, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It clearly was in the memory of new Christians in that first century who had heard Jesus preach and teach an amazing thing even though it is not recorded in the Gospels a third one is in the book of Revelation and Mel Gibson used this in the uh, script of the Passion of the Christ when on the Via Della Rosa Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary Um, he stumbles with the cross Mary, his mother, comes to him And in one of the most moving parts of the passion, he says to his mother, see, I make all things new. And a well-chosen, apt um, phrase of Jesus put in that particular point. Okay. So let's speak the verse one more time. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will will rather rather boast boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And the verse is not necessarily chosen throughout these weeks on the table of duties for a one-to-one correspondence for something there. This week it's what does God's word say of civil government? Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the, what God has instituted, constantly he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It's the first four verses of Romans chapter 13. And you might think it it paints an overly optimistic view of the civil authority. Uh, The civil authority is established by God. Whether or not the civil authority uses the authority given by God well, rightly, honorably, according to the rule of law, is another question. But it doesn't change the fact that that authority has been extended to them by God. It is often the abuse of authority that God extends that establishes what legitimate use of authority is, or what a legitimate office is. So what we can say about civil government, we can say about fathers and mothers. So what God's word has to say about fathers and mothers, and that's coming up in the table of duties as well, God stands behind the office of father and mother. That doesn't mean that there aren't some bad fathers and mothers out there. But the bad fathers and mothers does not negate the office of father and mother that God has established and vested his authority. And rather, for us as Christians, it establishes it. And not only does fourth commandment authority honor your father and your mother demands something of children, or in this case, of citizens, over against the civil government. It also demands something of those who have the authority. Fathers and mothers need to understand, you're in an office where you stand in God's stead to care for your children. That ought to inspire a certain sense of awe and reverence. So also, there. believe it or not, I know you might find this hard to believe, there are Christians who are in political office. Yes, someone gasped. <laughs> um, so they're to be reminded of this too, whose authority they are exercising. And here's another point. We made this before um, during COVID year and the extended Uh, July 4th catechesis I don't know if you remember we were outside in a democratic republic such as ours where the citizenry has the right of franchise the right to vote what Romans says about the civil authority being established by God also applies to you as the electorate You, you follow what I'm saying? So you are exercising civil authority under God in a democratic republic like this when you vote, when you exercise the franchise to vote for those in civil authority whom you want to exercise the sword according to the rule of law the Constitution of the United States and of the state of Wisconsin and so forth. So, with that said, I want to encourage you to vote. And I'll stop short. You can vote early, but I'll stop short of what they do in Chicago. That's where you were trained, right? That's where I was trained. (laughs) I'm trying to break free. Vote early, vote often. But at least vote early. And that would be a good that would be a good thing to do, okay? So the, the verse for the week doesn't uh, necessarily align. It's a, it's, a, it's a gospel verse of promise, right? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. But if you look at the grand scheme of things, when it looks like the church and Christians are subjugated to persecution and so forth, sometimes at the hands of oppressive civil regimes like we have in so many parts of the world today, this promise of the Lord is of comfort for them as well. Any um, any comments about that? Cindy Welch.
1: Well, you can pass on this, Pastor, if you prefer. Okay. But
0: I've always been conflicted with the balance between civil government and the right of citizens in this way. Alec asked me a couple years ago, were the um, pilgrims right to um, throw the tea over in Boston years ago, you, do do you is there a time when civil authority becomes so aggressive or oppressive to its people that the people can yeah, say I, I don't think those were the Pilgrims that, oh, did, that you're here to <laughs> to, but but I think we should ask Pastor Christensen, don't you think?
1: Oh, yes, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, she, she wants to know that, like, the Boston Tea Party, or more, more specifically, those who rebelled against King George.
1: Oh, or well, yeah. Was it right for them what, to do was that? Was it
0: right for them to do so? Now, we haven't talked about this. So what a, what um, a, what a, so terrible, what a terrible thing to put them in that position, right? This is a longer answer, but not every part of the American Revolution was a good choice on the part of the colonists. Um, So there was sin abounded on both sides. And so the respect for authority for King George uh, certainly should have been placed there. I mean, it's the same question as, can your teenage son um, disagree with you? And I'm certainly, you'll be thinking about this in some way. Maybe that's what he was planning. Hey, mom, can I? So I think it's a longer conversation just now. But the answer is, uh, no, I don't think they were entirely right. I think there was definitely an element where maybe they um, were breaking, not paying attention to Romans here. Good answer. I'm the, glad I have your approval, I, yeah, angel well, of the Lord. I, 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 dared, I dared to put him on the spot because I figured that's what he would say. I think we have, we have a, in the United States, we, we have this idea about the, democratic republic known as the United States of America as if this is um, different than any other nation on the face of the earth in terms of civil authority and established by God. And I, you know, I, I, I campaigned for Ronald Reagan in 1976 when he lost to Gerald Ford um, with the young republicans at the time. But his words about the city set on a hill, you know, it really doesn't apply to the United States. The, the city set on a hill is actually the church, not the United States. But politicians in the United States have been doing that all of the time. You know, our, our good friend Jesse Jackson loves to take Bible passages, and we don't hear much of him these days. But uh, you know, and and make use of them for his for his purposes. But uh, picking up on what Pastor Christensen said, you know. People then, given that, if there's sin on both sides and dishonor on both sides, then, then what's the legitimate government? See, that's, how, that's the question we ask. Well, let me put it to you this way. If a, a boy and a girl have relations outside of marriage and become a father and a mother, is their father and mother status illegitimate? No, they're still a father and mother. Now, they may have have found themselves in that role in a way that is not the way God wants it to happen, you know, let marriage happen first and then become parents. It doesn't change the fact that that's what they are. So, which means you can't say, well, since there was some fourth commandment transgression against the crown in Great Britain, therefore... We don't have to pay attention to the Constitution of the United States, but what we don't want to say is we don't want to we don't want to elevate the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States to the level of scripture, even though in both documents there are some things that resonate with scripture. Okay, and that's that's one of the great things about um, having the Academy is um, and just already observing Pastor Christensen's teaching, uh, bringing that kind of discernment to bear with the kids is uh, something that he is certainly doing, okay? All right, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 18. And last week, uh, we began this in an abbreviated Bible class where the Lord appears to Abraham in the form of the three visitors, an allusion to the revelation of God as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord. Speaks with Abraham, uh, namely the second person of the Trinity. And in verse 10, he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So the expression according to the time of life would have to do with, with God's design in biology, where there's conception, and then approximately nine months later, there's the birth. Even the virgin conception by the Holy Spirit of the Son of God still was a nine-month gestational period where the Son of God was in Mary's womb uh, for that entire period, growing into a baby ready to be born. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. So... The initial promise of the Lord in Genesis 12 continued to be made throughout Genesis. Now here in chapter 18, she will have a son. And it is going to be at this set time next year. And so Sarah's listening to this, and Abraham and Sarah were old, well-advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, some of you might be asking, how could that possibly give a 90-year-old woman pleasure? You know, she's 89, it's going to be 90 when Isaac is born. But it's a joke. It is a divine comedy that this old couple will have a son. Remember, the message of the cross is considered to be what by the wise of this world?
1: Foolishness.
0: Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Sarah laughing at this is what our human reason does. But we cannot, by our own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him. The Holy Spirit must call us by the gospel. And that promise of the seed made to Abraham and Sarah is the gospel. And the great comfort is, in spite of their laughter and in spite of their doubts, over the decades, God kept his promise. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer, no. And as I pointed out last week, we can think of the rich young man, and after that discussion, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom because they make a God out of their riches, their accomplishments, and so forth. With men it is impossible, but not with God with God all things are possible not only the rich being brought to repentance but but also a 9-year-old woman having a child and a virgin conceiving with God all things are possible is anything too hard for the lord and the answer is no at the appointed time i will return to you according to the time of life and sarah shall have a son notice how in the face of Sarah's laughter, the Lord repeats the promise. This is what we do. Fritz, I'm going to do this for you. And he says, no, you're not. And then I say, fine, I'll go find somebody else. That's what we do. But here, at the set time I'm going to come, well, I shouldn't point out to you, at the set time I'm going to come to you, you're approaching 89, aren't you, Robin? You know. <laughs> And at the time of life, you will have a child. And she laughs. Why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for me? I said, at the set time, I'm going to do this. See, the promises of God are extended not on account of faith, but to call out faith. You follow that? A lot of people say it's called, what's the Latin phrase? Intuitu fide, right? So that's in view of faith, God does something no that's not it his promises are what call for faith even when it says abraham believed the lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness the righteousness was in the promise and that promise called forth faith that caused abraham to receive the promise so he's justified by faith not because his faith was a good work but rather a miracle of God's grace in the promise that called him to receive and believe that promise. Okay, So it's illustrated here throughout the book of Genesis how God makes promises, they laugh, they pass their wives off as their sister, and so forth, and he keeps his promise. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to flaunt God's promises. I don't want you to run away from God's promises. But when you have done that, and when you've laughed at God's promises and then the devil says, there's no hope for you, Ty because you doubted the Lord. You can go to these passages and know that the Lord is faithful. What did St. Paul said? He said, when we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And that's a special privilege you and I have as baptized children Let me put it to you this way, if you will not turn your back on your children, who may have turned their back on you, how much more will God not turn away from you? Again, that doesn't mean we can't be prodigal children, we can be. But God's heart of love for his children remains constant. That's the heritage bequeathed to us in our baptism. Okay, that's the right, that is the privilege. All right. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And he's going to keep his promise. All right. I'm going to pause here, because Paul has a question. I was going to ask if there were questions. Don't get too comfortable in the back. Okay?
1: Thank you. Uh, verse 12. Verse 12 uh pleasure uh what's the uh, why
0: did i know you were going f- <laughs> to that that
1: <laughs> what's the meaning number 1 from sexual intercourse number 2 pleasure of having a children having children or a child
0: uh neither is certain or number 3 something else do you have something in view for something else do you have something in view for something else? Okay, is your comment? About comment, the word there is "shall I have Eden?" That's I've grown old. Shall I now have Eden? Eden, Garden of Eden. Yes, pleasure, delight. So, on the basis of Pastor Gelbach's comment, you can answer your question. The answer is yes. That that the, the communion of coming together physically, a husband and wife in one flesh, and the fruit of that union, which is children, is a return to Eden. It's paradise, it's joy, it's pleasure. God intended you, you can see <clears throat> we separate out the one flesh union from the fruit of the one flesh union, and we shouldn't do that. And both are a delight. I mean, it's a delightful thing for me. We've had so many uh, pregnant mothers. And what a a joy that is to see. And they all seem to radiate the fullness of life. It's on their face. The the life is magnified as they carry the life within them. But the two go together. You see, the delight of giving yourself to your beloved and her receiving you... (coughs) There's pleasure in that that goes beyond simply mere ecstasy of the the sexual union. It is the ecstasy or the joy of having your life received, your love received. This is something that the world does not get. For the world, you know, it's I didn't get anything out of that relationship. That conceives of the relationship physically as one where I've got to get satisfied. When the true satisfaction comes in this, it is a a very real sense, a holy communion in giving yourself to the other. And she receiving your love and life. And it is love and life, literally. I mean, the biological union is a spiritual union as well as a physical biological union. Where you are giving over to your beloved love and life in the physical commodities which are entrusted to you by God. So Sarah, in her, um, in her words, shall I still have pleasure, both are included there. The delight of receiving the love and life of her husband and then bearing the fruit of that life in a child. Okay? And um, it's, a, it's, quite, a, it's a, quite a mystery, but Pastor Gelbach's... Uh, uh, note there is absolutely fabulous. Eden. You know? What hymn do we sing? A return to Eden. That address unknown. Remember it's hidden from us. No I Sorry, I can't resist. We've been at the auction last night. So. Okay. That's good. Susan Somebody asked last week about how or Thursday or something, I don't know. About how would they know that it was the Lord and not somebody else? And I thought, well, the Lord was coming to Abraham a lot. And then this comment about, um, I will return to you next year. There's no record in the story that he came back next year. So I'm proposing he was at the circumcision party that
1: day. That would be a year later.
0: Well, yeah, but the the context of... of visiting them, is visiting them according to the promise for both the the initial conception and then the sustaining of that life, which is a miracle in the womb of a woman who is 90 years old when she gives birth. So I will come to you does not need to be uh, uh, left at one point in time, but the ongoing uh, sustaining grace of the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. You can apply that verse here to this. John, did you have a... Okay, no. All right, good. Now, this next part is one of the examples of uh, Abraham living by faith in the Lord's promise as he intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. So, it is verse 16 and following... Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him now in this in those verses you just heard you can detect the reason the rationale why God chose Abraham and promised to make of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a great nation. And the reason God chose them, did you see that? That they may, what does it say? Command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. And in verse 18, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So God chose Abraham and made of him a great nation for the blessing that he would bring to other nations. This is all about the gospel. To keep the Lord's word is to believe it and to trust it. And the way of the Lord is what Jesus is talking about when in John 14 he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when it says to do righteousness and justice, that is the righteousness and justice of the mercy of God in Christ's vicarious atonement. We do justice when we live by faith in God's law and gospel for the sake of forgiving sinners. In the cross, God did justice. In the cross, God established righteousness. And Abraham believed in the Lord's promise, in your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that blessing comes from the justice that God did in the cross which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called to live from, and that justice and righteousness in the cross, they're called to keep, to trust, to teach it to their children, and that righteousness and justice in the cross is what brings the blessing to all the nations of the earth, which is all grace language. This is why, then, in what follows, Abraham is given the opportunity, so to speak, to exercise that faith in his intercession for Sodom on behalf of the righteous believers who were in Sodom. Okay? Did you follow? Did did you follow that? I think d- the doing of righteousness and the doing of justice for 99.9% of the people all is thought of in legalistic law-oriented even works righteous terms. But the doing of justice is what Jesus did when he received sinners and ate with them. He called them to repentance and he forgave them on the basis of his atoning sacrifice. Okay. So, he says here, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, And because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has now come to me. And if not, I will know. So it's the exposing of their sin. Sodom and Gomorrah. We get some names for uh, perverse sexual activity from this city of Sodom. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. You get this picture he's going with them and they say what they're going to do and then continue to walk and Abram puts himself before the Lord. okay, As, as if to almost prevent them from going to Sodom and Gomorrah. Interceding. And he's interceding on the basis of the promise, in your seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And on the basis of those righteous ones who are righteous because of faith, they kept the Lord's word. You follow? So Abraham is juxtaposing him in between the Lord and judgment against Sodom. Uh, We had a Thomas Kelly hymn today, and we'll have one coming up in Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And um, I was a little bit disappointed that they altered the word in that hymn, which was written in English, from interpose to intervene. None would intervene to save. The original was none would interpose to save. And while to intervene and to interpose are are related concepts, to interpose means that someone is standing in the place of that judgment. See, and which is much stronger. That's what Jesus did. None would interpose to save. Only Jesus went between us and the divine judgment. That we deserved. You follow that? Okay. So if you sing the hymn and then you just sing interpose instead. It's okay. Because <laughs> then it'll be like Pentecost anyway. You know the many different languages. Okay. So. Uh, verse 23. And Abraham came near and said. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous. Remember. In This this is righteous are believers in the promise. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the, the, the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now notice how the justice that Abraham is calling for is the justice of the forgiving righteousness of Christ. Those of you who have been in Coffee Break Bible study in, in Matthew would talk about the forgiving righteousness of Christ. That's what Abraham is appealing to here. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes... Notice, he has no standing of his own. The only right he has to intercede is the right granted in the promise itself. I've taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he, the Lord, said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. Then he, that is Abraham, spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. And he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Now, I like that reference to let not the Lord be angry. Because sometimes I found that Christians struggling with sin in their prayers, I'm making the Lord angry because I keep asking him For the same grace and forgiveness that I've always been asking for. As if we ever had a right to it. But you see that reflected in Abraham here. But the Lord is not angry to hear the prayers for mercy on on the basis of his promise of grace. Then he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he, the Lord, said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Doesn't this remind you of the auction last night, except in reverse? (laughs) And he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And this number ten, of course, in the scriptures, is just the right number of God's gracious providence in the affairs of mankind. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So the Lord wants us to cry out to him on the basis of his promise of salvation. And to do justice, to do righteousness, is to live in our station and calling in life out of faith, not in the law, the letter of the law, but out of faith in the righteousness of God in Christ in his forgiving grace. And that's the way to true uh, freedom and joy and contentment in one's life. If you have a a burning question, we're right up against the clock here, but I don't want to stifle. You could say, just, I know I am but dust and ashes, but may I ask just one more question? All right. So next week is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Please observe, on on Palm Sunday, we will have the Passion according to St. Matthew. So the Passion readings that we've been hearing at the midweek, we'll hear the entire Passion read along with uh, various catechumens from the academy uh, assisting us in the reading of the Passion. And then uh, also the sermon for next, the the midweek sermons have... ...tied into the Passion for that week. That'll include Sunday's sermon that ties into the Passion... ...and then the burial of Jesus on Wednesday that ties into the Passion. So there, there are sermons on the entire Passion... ...including with Palm Sunday, Holy Wednesday... ...and then on... So all three services will be held on Holy Wednesday next week... ...as well as this week. On Maundy Thursday, it'll be regular chapel at 8.30 in the morning, but the 2.30 service and then the 7 o'clock service on Monday, Thursday will be essentially the same, except the stripping of the altar will only be done at the 7 o'clock service. But I know sometimes being out at night is um, not as easy for some, so the 2.30 service and the 7 o'clock service on Monday, Thursday will be the same. Tenebrae is the 9 o'clock service on Good Friday, We again will focus on the seven last words of Christ. That is a non-communion service, but brief meditations on the seven last words. And then we've got 1 o'clock in the afternoon and 7 o'clock on Good Friday. The Easter vigil this year um, will be outside, God willing. 7.30 is the time because of the placement of the sun. And then regular service times on Easter Sunday grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.